we have the trend of the de-influencer, which, which I'd never heard of. Well, it's getting about, I think last time I looked, which is about three or four days ago, there was 150 million views of the hashtag de-influencer. Oh, my word. When I say it's a big trend, million. 150 million. Yeah. Wow. I say, and that's just on TikTok. My name's Mike Lander, and you're listening to Marketing Negotiations, the good, the bad, and the ugly, in partnership with The Drum, where we bring you negotiation insights from CMOs, agency leaders, and acclaimed authors. Katie, thanks ever so much for joining me on the Drum's Marketing Negotiations podcast. Thank you for having me. And Katie, how long have we known each other now? I've lost track. Yeah, so have I 10 years? 10 years, years, easily, must be 10 years. And anyone that's listening to this, um, Katie's probably, so obviously you'll describe yourself in a second, but as an agency leader, you are the, the person I reference all the time about how to engage procurement in order to get a collaborative, mutually agreeable deal. But over the long term, it takes a long time to nurture those relationships. And we'll come on to that later on. So... Let's kick off with um, just kind of open bound. Yeah, what's your background? What's your current role? And something unusual or a passion about yourself? Okay, so I, I launched a media future social media agency twenty years ago when it was all blogs and MySpace. Um, but I, but more importantly, I think I, I have been in sales and marketing or BD or whatever name you wish to put it. But the best part of thirty five years. Um, so, and I love it. I still love it to this day. It's the bit that excites me the most. I love marketing, do not get me wrong. I love working out strategies, but there is always the new and shiny about landing a new client. Um, exactly. A usual passion of mine is um, I have a very busy brain. I think you and me have kind of alike. We do, definitely, absolutely. I really struggle to switch it off at night. And, and in my 30s and 40s, that manifested as working very long hours. Yeah. Now I crochet. And the wonderful thing about crocheting is that you count constantly. And it's a bit like a mantra, whether you're knitting or crocheting, I can do both, is that you just, your mind drifts and you're busy. Your hands are busy. Your mind is busy. You're focused and you're not thinking, oh, what about this and what about that? And it really is the most restful thing I do. Plus the fact my friends and family love all the handbags I make and blankets and shawls and scarves. And... So it's got a double benefit. Yeah. Brilliant. So uh, let's get into the kind of the, the meat of the discussion uh, around negotiation and also particularly procurement. So you've got an unusual perspective about working with procurement. So do you want to expand on that approach in terms of kind of, you know, relationship building and how you work with them over the long term uh, and about this kind of um, I'm just a human bit, which is interesting. <laughs> so, yes, I am. Uh, uh, I like people uh, and I like procurement people. And weirdly, you don't have to look at them as the enemy. So I We're work... humans too. As I used to yes, say to people, exactly. I am actually a human being and I have feelings. Exactly. And no amount of, of hard asked sort of negotiation skills actually make any difference to me. And that's, I think it's partly, if I'm honest, like having done, you know, everything from the 
cold calling telesales. I have such a thick skin. I don't think I really know. <laughs> I just don't think it up personally. But creating a relationship is really important. I often meet procurement people after the negotiation. So when the negotiation is off, I, I then take them for dinner or lunch or get pissed with them. Um, and, and there is a rationale for that. One is I get to understand the procurement process better. I understand what those triggers are. Um, but, but there's another side effect, and that is a lot of procurement people move around. Quite a lot of them are contractors, and they're only there for short periods of time. And so that helps us get on rosters later on down the line. And this whole bit about procurement being more human has meant that on many occasions I've said, oh, you know what, let's put our cards on the table. What is it you need to prove to the business? Tell me, I'll work a way in which you can look good and we can make the margin that means that this has value for us. And sometimes just sometimes just going blah and being really honest can have a really massive impact. And I have negotiated with global multinationals doing that and where they've just gone, you know what, let's not spend five weeks trying to sort this out. This is what I need to show. I need to show this budget or this quality or this element. Sometimes it, you'll be surprised it's not always about budget. Nope, certainly isn't. So if you have that honest conversation, you find out what it's about. So interesting, Katie, if you, if you talk to other agency leaders, and you know a lot of agency leaders, I know, um, and you look at people, and this isn't an age thing at all, but if you look at people that are early in their kind of career of building an agency, for example, or in a BD role, um, do you find that you've got the, ex what I'm trying to get to is, you've got the experience and the gravitas and the um, the self-comfort to go, what's the worst that happens? If I ask them an open honest question, the worst that happens is they say, I won't answer that. Yeah. And eventually, if they keep doing that, then you walk away. Yeah. But do you find with other agency leaders, they're more anxious, they're more fearful, yeah. they're more cautious about doing that? Yes. And that that really is the, the hiccup to get over. Yeah, um, And there are ways in which you can do that. And, and if you look at, I don't just jump on a call. I do not do that. The, I do a massive amount of research. So and what sort of research do you do, Katie? Just out of interest, just kind of things that you would look at. So I will look at the business. I will look at the business finances. I will look at how they engage with other agencies. I will look at who other which other agencies are involved. I will then look at the person, not just on LinkedIn, but actually using Crystal Nose to find out more about them. We also um, use Winmo, which gives you more of the financial spend. And I plan out, not only do I get to know them, and then the way Crystal Nose tells you the way they like to negotiate. You can tell whether they're, and they always tend to fall into the more either director type or detail type. I can't remember what that's called now, but they're either the people who want every minutiae explain to them or they're the kind of people who want the big bold statements that tends to be where they sit whereas i am and it kind of the more inspirer chatterboxy thing so i have to adjust my behavior just slightly to fit them and that's what i mean at prep it's so crystal knows uh katie just for again the listeners what exactly is that it's a tool you pay a a fairly minimal uh, subscription to that 
tells you what the disk archetype is. So disk is, is kind of like what the psychology, what the triggers are for that particular individual, how they like to be communicated with. And it has disk has four archetypes. And basically it it helps you understand what language you need to use. So it says, you know, uh, uh, because it's assigned to you, it'll say to me, Katie, don't be all waffly kind of thing. Or be creative, be direct, be creative with this person. Actually be in the detail. This is this person is risk averse. So get into the detail. So it's really helpful. It's not always a hundred percent accurate. But it's another data point. It's a really good indicator and it helps you think in your head how you want to approach this. Um, a great example to give you is a, a director type, which is very typical of a of a uh, a director, a senior person, or a procurement person. These are people who like uh, they want the big goals. They don't want the fluff. They want to know what the they want the decision to be made really quickly. In those scenarios, closing your mouth a lot works really well because because they'll talk. They'll tell you what they want, and if you interrupt them, they'll they'll disengage from you. You'll irritate them. Yeah, so that's really interesting. Different about the prep because <clears throat> obviously if what i like to do on these kind of podcast episodes is um talk to the guest about a particular aspect of negotiation and then also reflect on what all of the research says uh, what the research says around negotiation success preparation is well over well over 80 percent of the success in any negotiation if you yeah. fail to prepare and you meet someone like me in my old role as a procurement director i will have prepared because I've got tens of projects and agencies I'm working with at any one time to try and do stuff across the piece. If I spent the time to book a meeting with you and have a discussion, that's precious to me. I'll prepare. If you've not prepared on the other side, I'll just shut the conversation down and move on. Yep. And the other part to this is I scenario plan. Ah. So once I've got all that information, I look at all the things I might be asked. So... Rates is a really obvious one. What's your hourly rate? What is my answer to that? What is because if if you're value selling, what's your answer to that? Exactly. They want the cost comparison. They want to understand what their spreadsheet with all of their different yeah. grades and rates, and they can see yeah. how they can compare. Exactly. So I scenario plan, and then I do what I call my top and bottom. So the top is what do I want to achieve? What do I want to convince this person that we're good at? What do I want to how do I want to sidle up to them and say, well, you know how other agencies are offering you this? We're going to give you this, this, and this. So I want to make them feel really precious, like they're precious to us, because they are. And then I have my bottom line. My bottom line, the bottom of it is, when do I walk away? So, so what we would call I, your batner, your best yeah. alternative to a negotiated agreement, your walk away positions. Love that. <laughs> I, love a, I love a good mnemonic. <laughs> Yes, uh, because that, you know, when we've negotiated with very big procurement departments, that is fabulous because you kind of go, you, it allows you to say the really bit in your head and go, you know what, this is not going to work for us. The margins are so tight, you're just going to, we'll be bankrupt after a year. Thank you very much. I'm going on. But it also allows you, for somebody who is like me, if you're an emotional leader, I'm an emotional person. I know you're not meant to mix that with business, Mike. <laughs> Katie, it's served you well for 35 years. 
Who am I to say? <laughs> Just, but you know, I can't help it. I I leak emotions all over the place, which means that this is also a way of controlling how I feel about something, and not you know, I can't help myself. I will roll my mm. eyes. Yeah. So yeah, what yeah. it does is it calms me and says, I know exactly where I'm going. I don't need to roll my eyes at this stupid thing that they said to me. What I'm going to do is slow this down and it slows the process down. And a lot of what I will do is go, you know what? I'd need to think about that and discuss it with my leadership team. And I walk away to think about it. So is it your, uh, is what you're saying, the preparation enables you in the heat of a moment to go, let's pause. I'm not going to react to this emotionally. We're going to pause. I'm going to come back to you when I've talked to some people and reflected. Yes. And frankly, that's nearly always well-received. It is. Because they then see me, they see me as a mature grown-up who is actually being thoughtful about this and, and quite often might come back and say, yes, okay. Or I might go back and say, we could do this, but I'd like to see this. So we then use it as a You'll make a trade. Yeah, but I'm too, my head is buzzing and the red mist is floating about my head. I can't think of it in the moment if they sideline me. So two things on that, I think. One, that's how you manage anxiety and emotion in a yeah. negotiation. And you've learned that over many years and it's worked well. The second thing is you're signaling, if I was the buyer, what you're signaling to me is a number of things. Two that spring to mind. One, you are very prepared. You know where your limits are. And you're kind of emotionally uh, developed as an individual. Uh, you've got maturity. And secondly, you signal to me your what we call the reservation value. I now know Katie's reached the, probably the end of the line on that one. So we've reached the end of the line on, will they accept um, you know, a 15% discount against the proposal for option two? They might do, but Katie's concerned. She's walking away. She's going to want something else. So if they come back and say, yes, but I need payment terms on 14 days, I can then start to prepare for that. Yes, it's a dance. I always see it as a very pleasant dance. It is. Uh, and once you learn the skill, for instance, many years ago, my husband and I were releasing a car, a brand new, our first ever brand new one, and we did exactly the same dance with the salesperson where... They came back and said, well, we can't really add that. And, we, and I said, we have to think about it for 24 hours. And I remember my husband going, oh, my God, oh, my God. They were, and I said, look, they will sell us the car. I just want the service included. And Garand, next day, first thing, I've spoken to my so, Katie, I've talked to my manager, and you wouldn't believe it. You wouldn't <laughs> believe it. But you, because you're such a great person, were prepared to throw the service in. Yeah. But it happens, doesn't it? It's the reality. And yep. again, I remember doing something similar about five years ago. We were looking for a, a new car on a lease. And I had three cars that were all viable. And the, the, the reason I mention this is that, again, for any, anyone listening, um, if you've only got one car you want, let's say you, want, you picked your car and it's the perfect car and that's it, and you walk into a negotiation, the problem is if you say, I'll think about it, you have no other option. You've nowhere else to go. Well, if the salesperson spots that, you're a bit doomed. But if you've got three options, and, you, and I remember saying to this guy, look, you know, I'm, I'm not playing games. There's two other cars we're looking at. I've got a meeting in two hours to go and see the next one, and then an hour after that. Um, I'll make a decision on Monday, but uh, you need to basically look at the offer you're making because it's not competitive. 
you know, I'll be on the phone until five. Unsurprisingly, the one that we bought or one that released made a very, very, very attractive offer. And it was unsurprisingly quarter end. Yeah, that is a yes. Yes, that's the other tactic. Yes. <laughs> but interesting, and, and, and that happens in business. Yeah. Is that, I mean, interesting to get your view on. So we're going slightly off piste, as we always yes. said we would. We'll go down some rabbit warrens, which is always fun. In terms of you having a, a, that walkaway position, how important, it's a bit of a leading question, but how important is having a strong pipeline to give you the confidence to walk away and say there are other opportunities that are more profitable? Yeah, I it definitely, definitely. Um, because it gives you the personal confidence on the inside. But I have negotiated in times when we are desperate to make this, but I've stuck to my guns. And I have walked away from a couple of big accounts where, frankly, it it was we would have it we would have lost money on it. Um, and that is where being prepared really helps because if you are going to enter into an agreement that might cover I don't know fifty percent of your overheads, what's the point? Because you're still covering the other fifty percent. You're just kicking the can down the road. You are, and actually, and people call think, it a lost leader. They say oh, I'm no. doing it because it's a lost leader. I've never made any money ever no. in the long term ever on a lost leader. No. Have you? Um, no, no. And in fact, a better way to negotiate is, okay, so you want a 20% discount. What do you want to cut? Yeah, I exactly. What's that, right? What do you want to reduce? take out? Because I have to make a some profit in this or at least cover my costs and a little margin on it. Yeah. It doesn't have to be, you know, 200%. But it has to be a reasonable, considered, because you want us to be in business a year down the line. You don't want me not to be in business. And you know what? This is, I never have a conversation with procurement where the end goal is to destroy the agency. So as soon as you go back and say, this is what our overheads are, this is what why we invest. One of the things we often say to in procurement negotiations is that our typical agencies are, 80% plus billable, we are less. We are less billable because we invest more in keeping up to date because social media keeps changing and we need to go and test and learn. But that knowledge is then transferred to the client, but it means that we, you know, without killing our staff, we can't be 80% billable because we need to give them time to go and explore these options. And that bit suddenly corrects the value in our rates because I'm saying, hold on a minute, I've, we've got short amounts of time, but there is a massive amount of investment here that is actually giving you more value for your... Because you're, you're thought leaders, because you're spending time developing your thought leadership and your research, that comes out in the value add, which comes out as an ROI. So exactly. what you've cleverly done is you've explained to the client where the value is yes. in economic terms. Yes, indeed. That's a better way of reframing. What, and then, because the other thing I'll uh, do. Reframing. Oh, it's my favorite topic. <laughs> my favorite subject. After <laughs> anchoring. I'm, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, for me, what was I listening to the other day that said, you know, every problem is an opportunity. And I love that. I, you know, we are an agency, as you and I were discussing a few weeks ago, problem solvers. So every has to be an opportunity. So if it's a problem over um, rates or seniority of staff or wanting to put juniors on it, what is the opportunity in that? And that reframe in your head 
helps you look at where you can add value, where you can explain. Quite often I deal with procurement people who don't know marketing, why having the most junior person then means that they need to invest in crisis management <laughs> because there are more things that are going to go Mistakes wrong. Mistakes are going to happen, yeah. Yeah. So uh, all of these things can help you to understand that the negotiation process is tense. It's You are filled with anxiety, but channel it in a more positive way to look at the options. Exactly. And solve problems. Yeah. So let's just flip the coin for a second. So let's turn it on to the other side. Um, can you talk about how you negotiate with influencers when you're the buyer, kind of on behalf of your clients? This is super hot topic at the moment because <laughs> we have um, we have the trend of the de-influencer. Which, which I'd never heard of. So explain no. what that is. Well, it's getting about, I think last time I looked, which is about three or four days ago, there was 150 million views of the hashtag de-influencer. Oh, my word. When I say it's 50 million. 150 million. Yeah. Wow. I say, and that's just on TikTok. Let alone, that doesn't count, you know, Instagram. And that's on the influencer. Yeah. Okay. So these are people who are going out and saying, don't buy this. This is rubbish. This is no good. Honest and genuine reviews, although there's some shady things going on as well with influencers. Yeah, I can imagine. Jump. Going, don't buy this, but buy that, which is, yeah. you know... Not so good. Um, but my premise is exactly the same when negotiating with influencers as with procurement. Plan. Plan, 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 prep, 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 prep. If you don't do these things, then what happens is you don't know what you're negotiating. So do your research on the influencer. Check them out. Check them out 20 years ago. And make sure they weren't in the National Front or whatever before years ago. Do your research, understand. So there's two things. First of all, there's a managing the risk, which is due diligence. But the other side of it is having all the options you want, deciding what you want, because not everything will be about the money. Um, negotiations could be that you have the ability to use that, the content they might create in, per in perpetuity. Exactly right. So you have effectively, um, you've got copy, you've got rights to market that material under certain conditions in perpetuity forever. You don't own the material, but you've got the right to use the material. Indeed. And, or it could be that you want them to achieve a set of KPIs or uh, return on investment. Or use their network. If they've got a massive follower base. Exactly. So we, Work through a framework that's, that looks in depth at this so that when we decide on the influencer that we will, we're not just looking at how much we're spending, but the value that the client will get, that's what's driving the price. That's And, and we see so many influencer contracts that are done very poorly because of that. And, and the reality is that's because they're, they're kind of one-hit wonders in a way. They're their connections to the influencers, promote this, off, I'll send you a bunch of whatever, you go do it. Well, that doesn't that that is not how it's going to work anymore because you risk it being de-influenced. So what you should be doing is saying, if I send this to you, what will you say? These are the things we need you to talk about. It doesn't mean you have to be positive about everything, 
But oh, we want to look at what you're doing or we want to guide you. We want a long-term relationship. We'd like to invite you to the HQ. We'd like to get you involved with meeting some of the very senior people. So we want to build a long-term relationship with you. Now, if you set your goals like for that and then the KPIs and the ROI that your client will want at the other end, then, then you can set your budget. It becomes much easier to go, what is the worth of this to us? Over the long term, Katie. So what's yeah, important there, I the think, is when you're negotiating with an influencer, I, I, I'm, as I'm guessing, um, the more commitment you can give them about them becoming effectively a brand ambassador over the long yeah. term, the better the negotiate the commercial deal you're going to strike across all the parameters of IP yeah. and price and terms and termination rights and access to materials, all that becomes much more measured. Yeah, exactly. And and because you are, you are, it's the same way we used to negotiate talent when we were, you know, 30, 40 years ago. You would have a fairly heavyweight contract that said what you can and can't do and what the expectation was. Now, obviously, the more rigid you are, the more you're going to have to pay. Okay. The more flexible you want to be. You might not want a 20-page contract with the with your influencer, but you do need to think about, in this d- day and age where influence relations is worth so much to the industry, we need to think in detail about where the value sits for the brand. It is that bit that often gets missed. What happens is we kind of run down and go, oh, we can get this influencer. Well, what are they influential in? Are they influential in reach? Are they influential in authority? Are they influential because they're in a niche? What what are they influential in and where is the value for the brand? If you don't keep asking yourselves that, you, you're starting your negotiation from a place where it's only about money. I mean, step frankly, one, yeah, I've got this negotiation framework, as you know, simple four steps. Step one is basically the context. What are your objectives? What are their objectives? So what are they trying to achieve? And does it align with what you're trying to achieve? If those objectives don't align, you're never going to get a negotiation that works. Nah. Spot on. So that was brilliant. We here we could have a whole, and we might in fact have a follow-up episode on influencers and about negotiating with influencers. But lastly, uh, what are your kind of top two or three tips to anyone negotiating commercial deals, especially now? Right now, I would say um my my biggest tip is going in with something small and discreet. Um, right. Um, I, I was on a, a webinar the other day and somebody called them gateway projects. That yeah. <laughs> it made me laugh so much that we've, I've started calling them gateway pro- projects too. Yeah. Um, but I love the idea that what you're doing is something that's actually quite a discreet way of doing something. The value is that if you do it in the right way, with the right costings against it, with the right negotiation against it, it becomes a very easy way in which you can set up your negotiations. You can go, here it is. It's almost it's a, it's almost like a product. And this is what we do. This is what we do. This is what we do. This is the end game. This is the, so it's much more solid than maybe a retainer or going on. So not ideal. Don't get me wrong. Everybody wants to to, to, to look at the long term. But but in the current climate, where budgets are being released on a quarterly basis, where there's anxiety, certainly within procurement, of de-risking what they're spending, not committing to a whole year in case things change, 
this unpredictability, then doing things in smaller chunks, so long as you have the backup of thinking about how your client services will wrap around this to get the next one, is actually an easier way to deal with where we are with the fluctuation in the economy. Yeah, that's brilliant. And any any other kind of pearls of wisdom based upon your years of experience? Over 35 years, what's the one thing that stands out for you in terms of negotiating? Oh, um, apart from relationships, which we discussed, the other thing that I love to do is anchoring, which I know you know. So, which is when I'm in that initial conversation, now this is often not with procurement, this will be with marketing, uh, I will look at numbers, I will give ranges that even if the final proposal sits in the middle somewhere or wherever she inevitably does. Always um, give a range. My top range is always anchored and it is the bells and whistles. Yeah. If we if we could do anything. And it's not a thrown out figure. That's the other thing. Because in the States you can go, you know, if you had a million pounds, we could do this. But actually, if you say to them, you know, our first class top flight project doing this is a hundred and two thousand pounds and fifty pence. Yeah. Leave you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you have to work it I out. Do. You have to mm-hmm. do that. You have to do your quote. Yeah. But if you were to like actually quote it out. If you go in with that, then very occasionally people go, show me that. Yeah. I'd like to have a look. And typically what happens in my experience, Katie, is, is that as a buyer and a seller, um, we tend to drift about 20% around an anchor. So if you anchor first high, typically, as long as the scope and the impact's there and the ROI, we'll negotiate typically 20% around that. So to your point, if you miss anchor by not doing your research, one side's leaving money on the table. Yeah. Katie, as always, it's been amazing. Uh, where can people oh. find out more about you? Uh, they can have, look me up on LinkedIn. I'm just Katie Howell on LinkedIn. I'm Katie Howell on Twitter. And our website is www.immediatefuture.co.uk. Perfect. Katie Howell has been amazing. I thought it would be. <laughs> Thank, <laughs> Thank you. you. Thanks for listening to the Drum Podcast series on Negotiation Insights with your host, Mike Lander. Please subscribe so that you'll catch the next episodes from our global marketing industry experts.